This is a, a series, uh, this sermon is in a series that I've been preaching from the Apostles' Creed. I started out uh, preaching this series because uh, I received an email from uh, a couple of people that I know, and um, they did not see the value in creeds, and furthermore, they didn't understand what some of the language of the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed meant. Well, I am preaching that series because of that. And in some ways, I'm doubling down because I'm also teaching the confession in Sunday school, the Westminster Confession, which is a summary of uh, Christian teaching. And I will be referring to uh, that today. Uh, Part of the reason for preaching this, too, is that many people take the name Christian But uh, many people believe that any opinion, any idea, any doctrine they wish to believe is compatible with the name Christian. It is not. As we shall see as we continue to go through the creed, a Christian must profess certain doctrines and teachings found in the scriptures, and they pertain to the person of Christ, who he was, what he did for us. They pertain to his work. He died on the cross and was raised on the third day, ascended into heaven, and he sent his Holy Spirit, and one day he is coming back uh, to wrap history up, if you will. So, let me start out today by saying that chapter 26 of the Westminster Confession of Faith treats of this subject, the communion of the saints, which is a phrase found in the Apostles' Creed. Now remember, the Apostles' Creed was not written by the Apostles. It just simply is a summary of their teaching. It uh, arose in the the, uh, 3rd and 4th century. Actually, in the 2nd century, it was a baptismal creed whereby people were prepared for baptism by going through this outline and learning what Christianity was all about. So, we are preaching then from the Apostles' Creed, but the doctrine that I'm preaching today is found in chapter 25 of the saints. The larger catechism, and as I tell people, it's larger for a reason. It's very extensive. The larger catechism has much to say about the communion of the saints. But the whole focus of the larger catechism is on our union and communion with Christ. It says very little about our union and communion with each other. That might be a defect in the larger catechism not to give more space uh, to our relationship one to another. The shorter catechism, of course, adds nothing to any of this. And so the subject at hand today, then, is the communion of the saints. And uh, my scripture uh, is all taken pretty much from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and then in chapter 12, though I'll mention some other scriptures as well. Now, this is what I want you to see uh, this day from this sermon. Christians form a unique community. Unique, remember, means one of a kind. Christians form a unique community on earth. And uh, that, that community... Unique community is rooted in their relationship to Christ and to each other. Further, I want you to observe in this sermon that 
This community is characterized by identifiable characteristics and obligations because of our relationship to Christ and to each other. Now, that is a long thesis statement, but I think that it'll be brought to your mind throughout the sermon. In some ways, I'm continuing to deal with the subject of the church. It is interesting that as we look through the Westminster Confession of Faith, the chapter before the communion of saints is on the church. And let me remind you also that the chapter afterwards has to do with the sacraments. Now, these form a unit and should be read as such. Church, communion of the saints, and sacraments. And I think you will see that too <coughs> in what I have to say that follows. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church then is um, in some ways the foundation for the communion of the saints. And the subject really is the same. This is actually the fourth sermon I'm preaching uh, on the church in a row. But we also must remember that we have been joined not only to Christ, but to each other in the body of Christ. So therefore, the first thing I want you to see is simply this, that we have our communion with Christ and his people through union with Christ. Now, understand that. We have our communion with Christ and with the body of Christ, the people of God, through the union that we have with Christ. <coughs> the Westminster Confession of Faith says this, all saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by his, by his spirit and by faith have fellowship with him in his graces sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. That is, everything that Jesus was due to our union, we have that and we share that. We share in his sufferings. We share in his benefits that he purchased for us on the cross. But at the same token, we are united to one another in love. We have communion in each other's gifts and graces because of that. The basic doctrine here, believe it or not, in one sense, is not mentioned very much in the creed except in this place, and that is union with Christ. I want you to listen how Paul puts it in Philippians. He says, if you have any encouragement, and this is a long scripture, so stay with me. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, Philippians 2, 1 and 2, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. So therefore, our union with Christ is the basis for receiving his benefits. Our union with Christ is a basis for us sharing in each other's gifts. The basis of our communion together is our union with Christ and with each other. Now, this union is also then something that is taught in the scriptures. God, through his Holy Spirit, unites us to Christ. And all of the benefits of Christ flow from that. Our justification, our adoption, 
our sanctification, our glorification, our relationship to each other. So remember that God united us to Christ by his spirit. And that becomes the basis for everything that follows. Let me go into something here that is a little difficult for Bible-believing Christians. We de-emphasize the sacraments too much. We have come to the place in our history in many of our Bible-believing churches where those sacraments that the Lord established seem just to be tackling things that we do once in a while. But let me say that this union that we have with Christ is set forth in the New Testament under signs and symbols. And in this case, the sign and seal of the covenant Notice that the passage that forms the basis for this sermon is 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to read a few verses out of that to show you that when the fellowship of the saints or the communion of the saints is being talked about, it's being talked about in the context of the Lord's Supper. Look at chapter 10, if you will, and follow me in these verses. Not only is this supper a sign and seal of our communion with each other and with Christ. It is that which sets us apart from the world. Now look at verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, Paul says, flee from idolatry. Paul is concerned about idolatry here. He's concerned about people going to church and then turning around and going to the pagan feasts and sharing in the pagan temples and rites. Now notice, Paul is not concerned, as he already said earlier in 1 Corinthians, I'm not concerned that you eat the meat that's sold in the marketplace, even though it was sacrificed to idols. Not concerned about that. He's, not, he's concerned about those who go to the temples and participate in their rites. And he says, what you are doing is demonic. Yes, idols are nothing, but behind those idols are demons. And if you go and you share in their rites, you are participating, sharing in demonic activity. However, conversely, he also says that if you come into the assembly of the Lord and you receive his supper, you likewise are sharing in the benefits of Christ. The Lord's Supper is not just simply a bare memorial meal until Jesus comes. It has a present dimension. It has a past and a future, but it also has a present. And what is that present? The present dimension is that we truly commune with Christ and his benefits under the sign of the Lord's Supper. And we are sealed in our fellowship. Listen then. Therefore, my dear friends, free, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Now listen carefully. Is not the cup of thanksgiving, that's the Eucharist, the word Eucharist, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation? Now it's an interesting word here. Koinonia, you've heard it. When... Um, Paul met Peter. They gave each other, hand, each other koinonia. They shook each other's hands. 
remembering the peace when you shook each other's hands. That really is a sign of your relationship to one another in Christ. You participate in each other's lives. In the communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, we really share in Christ and his benefits. You say, Pastor, would you define that for me? I can't. We get into trouble every time we try to locate it with particular words. But I will say this, there is no question that in the New Testament, we are taught that we truly share in Christ, at least in a heavenly manner, in Christ and his benefits. And he calls it a true communion, just like people commune with demons in those pagan temples, you commune with Christ under bread and wine. Listen, for we give thanks uh, for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ. And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf. We who are many are one body. This meal makes us, in a real sense, one body. It is for believers only. Because it is for the body of Christ. For we all partake of the same loaf, he says. Now, notice what this meal does. It separates us from the world. Only Christians have a right to this meal. At the same time, it unites us in Christ through sharing him sacramentally and his benefits. Consider the people of Israel, as he goes on to say. And he says down in verse 20, I do not want you to participate with demons. Quit the temple rites. Just because you can eat the meat in the marketplace does not mean you can go and share in the sacrifices in their temples. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. My friend, our union is in Christ. And our union is set forth in the Lord's Supper and baptism. Let me go to baptism for a moment. You say, where does baptism come into this? Well, there is a sense in which uh, I need to have you turn to chapter 12 of the same book and verse 13. He does say something here that is important about the body again. It's in the communion of the saints. He says the body is a unit. Though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. This is the communion of the saints. So it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one spirit into one body. Baptism is a non-repeatable sacrament. It's our initiation into Christ. It's the sign of it. The Lord's Supper is the sacrament of continuation. It's that one we, we repeat as often as we meet or schedule it. I have to add that because we serve it once or twice a month. But sacramentally, we also participate. There are two ways you participate in Christ together as his body when you meet in this assembly. Number one, we are a people or a fellowship of the word. 
you, you have heard the Word of God read to you. That's why Paul instructed all of the churches to read the Scriptures publicly. My friend, we do not have communion, for instance, around the back of the box of Quaker Oats. I read it. I read its nutritional value, but it has no sacramental benefit. I read the newspaper. Rather than encouraging me, I get discouraged. I look at TV. We all do. But it does not really do anything for us. These are just words. But when you come into the Lord's assembly and hear the Lord's word, it forms a community of the word. We come to believe pretty much the same thing about Christ, don't we? We come to believe and to trust his word concerning his sacrifice on the cross and his death, burial, and resurrection. And we come to the visible words, the Lord's Supper and baptism, and we are to do these things, for they cement us in Christ. Now, that then is the way that the communion of the saints is set forth through word and sacrament in the New Testament. Let me hasten to these other points real quickly. I have to cut them short. This is Communion Sunday. <coughs> Excuse me. And I want you to truly enjoy communion and to celebrate it in all of its blessings. First, I want to take an excursus here. In one sense, what we're talking about in the communion of the saints, we're, I'm going to say something maybe you haven't heard. There's only one sacrament. There's only one sacrament in the New Testament. Not simply two or five or seven. Only one. It is Christ. Grace and truth alone come through him. But he is offered to us in his word and through his sacraments. That's why, that's why we assemble together. That the presence of Christ is here not only immediately as we gather together, but mediatedly through word and sacrament. Every Christian needs that fellowship. This was a concern to the writer of Hebrews. He was concerned about those Christians who were absenting themselves from the Lord's house. He knew what a perilous thing that was. And he almost shouts to them after he gives all of these warnings. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Why? Because you miss out on Christ as he is in the assembly immediately. And mediatedly, you do not share in the benefits of Christ apart from the worship of God in his word. Now, I want to say something else about worship. <clears throat> worship also has a defining, a defining characteristic about it. It is amazing. What you worship, you become. That's what really Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 10. If you worship demons and you do their rites and their sacraments, you will become like them. Yes, the idols are nothing, but you will buy into the nothingness 
of the demons. And all of these powers and principalities have been defeated through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection. But you become like that. What you worship, you become like. Think of it this way. What you eat, you become like. What you eat really has a bearing on the kind of person you are. We had some neighbors when I was growing up that got on a blender kick of, uh, of uh, juicing up everything they had, and they must have really liked carrots. And uh, they would bring in bunches and bunches and bunches of carrots. And lo and behold, after a while, those people began to turn orange. Honestly. We could see when they had had a real dose of carrot juice. What you eat around the Lord's table, you become. You're receiving Christ and his benefits spiritually. When you come into this house and you listen to the word of God, read and preached and confessed, you are becoming like that. Worship has the power to change you and to shape you and to make you into something that is a glory to God himself. It is through his word that we have an entrance into the holy through the living word which is Jesus Christ, our Lord. John Calvin is often pictured as a harsh, uncaring, uh, hard-nosed, no-feeling, unsympathetic, and if he had feelings, they were all of anger. I remember reading a book by Eric Fromm as a freshman in college. It was called The Art of Loving. But in that book, there were two people he hated, Obviously, Luther and Calvin, he called them the world's greatest hate mongers. And it could have been in his second book, The Evil Heart of Man, I'm not sure, but one of those two books are from. In spite of that, he's supposed to be the apostle of love, Eric Fromm, to the secular world. But he despised John Calvin and Martin Luther. And uh, I don't know why he did. He was Jewish, and there was no particular reason for him to pick them out, but he just, he just did. Well, he hadn't read very much of John Calvin, I can tell you. He really was a pastor. Unlike Jonathan Edwards, who probably wasn't a very good pastor, John Calvin was. There was a lady that came to him once, a, a, a woman of no standing, and she says... Uh, Pastor, I, I'm, I'm beset by doubts. I'm trying my best. But it just seems like I, I, I'm, I'm just beset by doubts about my salvation. Now, he said something to her that you probably wouldn't say. But he said to her, have you been baptized? She said, yes. He says, well... Look to your baptism. Weren't you baptized into Christ? Didn't he promise to be your Savior? Didn't he give you a sign that he loves you? That's good pastoral advice. He's really telling her to look to Christ. 
And he's given you a sign and a seal of his love that he set up on you. Don't forget that. These are not idle things. They're true communications. It's a love letter. Calvin also loved the worship of God. He reformed the worship in Geneva, and he called it the form of prayers. The first time he went to Geneva, he was kicked out because he wanted to serve communion every Sunday. And that was unusual because in the Middle Ages, the Middle Evil Church did not serve the lay people communion. And when they got it, it was only in one species. He was kicked out. But John Calvin had a marvelous understanding of our union with Christ and the fellowship of the saints. My friends, we must always continue to meet like this and do the things that the Lord has commanded. And when we do that, we will share without envy or pride or jealousy in each other's gifts and each other's talents. We will rejoice when you rejoice and we will mourn when you mourn, and when you hurt, we hurt. This is the body of Christ, and this is the communion of the saints. Praise be to God. Amen.